The Awakened Project, Chapter 4, The Last Days. I changed our afterlife? I struggled out the words, following Clara's eyes up towards the sky. So, it's true. I died and this is... This is who we are. And this is what we want. Clara said softly, as she slowly lowered her head to look at me. I'm sorry, David. This is my fault. I should have guided you here from the Nexus. The pain and regret that was strangling me was almost gone. Just hearing her voice and being able to feel her touch was healing me. It did not bother me that I had died or that I had passed on to something I never truly believed existed. I was happy to be with Clara, and I knew anywhere I could spend the rest of my life with her would be heaven. Clara helped me to my feet. I looked briefly towards the sky and could see the darker clouds beginning to fade. She was looking at me, almost as if studying me. I felt nervous. It was deep inside of me. It was like the first day I approached her. Perhaps I would not describe it as shyness, but more like anticipation. I had so many thoughts, so many feelings, I said to Clara. There was so much I wanted to say to you, and now I'm... I just don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything, David. I can feel your thoughts, your emotions. This place, it reacts to the resonance of our life energy. One thing I had to admit to myself was my curiosity of the world I found myself in. My one-track mind to find Clara had kept my wonder in check, but finding her and holding her in my arms allowed my mind to wonder. I had so many questions about her about where we were and what would become of us. When she mentioned life energy, it made me think back just before I began working for the Naxum Institute. Claire and I had finished packing our things and stood on our balcony overlooking downtown. You could never tell it by the smile on her face, but she was extremely depressed that day. Her uncle had died only a few weeks prior, and though she did not know him well, it caused her to think about the mortality of her parents and what would lie beyond death. David, do you think there is something out there, you know, after we die? I don't know, I answered honestly. A part of me wants to take the scientific route and believe that when we die, that's it. On the other hand, if everything we are ends when we die, it just seems like a waste. Clara reached over, tightly grabbing hold of my hand. I knew she was looking for something to believe in to bring her comfort. After the death and destruction left from the war, there were many people looking for something higher than themselves. For some, like Lewis, it was the Trinity and their belief systems. For others, like myself, it was the love of those that, to me, gave me purpose, and allowed me to keep going. 
My uncle believed in the Trinity, Clara began. I remember one day at a family barbecue, he was telling my mother about his beliefs. He spoke about how he would feel his life energy within him and found peace because it could never be destroyed. It didn't really pay him any mind, but he looked so content. Even though there was a war going on all around us, he knew that no matter what, the core of who he was would live on forever. Who would not want that? Well, I think that's the point, I said with a notable hit of sarcasm. Clara looked at me slightly saddened by what I said. She remembered the story I told her about Lewis, but there was more to it. The global war was a war of resources and military power, but there was a strong religious context behind it. Many countries denied help to their neighbors due to their belief system or lack thereof. The war did not start on a global scale. In the beginning, there were small conflicts over the energy that spread into battles over land, and soon even the basic minerals. By the time the Alliance and Federation were formed, it was the Alliance that took a more secular view, while the Federation were staunch fundamentalists. Many believe the war was prolonged because of religious factions stirring the flames and refusing to concede. Religion was a very small part of my childhood. Patriotism and service to our faction were paramount. The first I heard of true organized religion was from the Trinity. Later, during my time in the service, I learned that the Trinity gained power and influence over the Alliance government. But as the war drew to a close and the treaty was signed, many from the Trinity turned their back on the Alliance views to separate government decisions and religious beliefs. During the closing days of the war, we discovered some members of the Trinity were staging attacks on civilian aid stations near the Federation's eastern border. When we engaged them, Lewis recognized some of the members and begged them to stand down. They opened fire, and we were forced to return in kind. I personally killed six Trinity members. After that, my relationship with Lewis was never the same. In the end, the Trinity disavowed the members who were staging the attacks, stating they were not sanctioned by anyone in their leadership council. I was called to testify before a government inquiry panel and told them everything I witnessed during the encounter. After my testimony, a man approached me. He told me humanity would be punished because we had turned our backs on God. I asked if it would be God or men like him and his ilk who would carry out the punishment. He just gnarled his teeth and walked away. I understood Clara's need to find something to believe in. Regardless of my experience with the Trinity Council, I still believed in a force greater than our own. However, for me, that force came from within, not from above. For Clara, that wasn't enough. She could look to me for strength, but I guess that wasn't enough either. Standing there in what my mind could only perceive as heaven, I wonder what truths were out there for me to find. Having Clara again was all I ever wanted, but I had to admit to myself that I did not plan on what would happen next. Perhaps that's why she stood there staring at me. She could see that I was lost even though I had found exactly what I had been looking for. So, then it's true? I asked Clara. That stuff about life energy and the connection to God, it was all true? 
I think we should discuss something else first, Clara said, her voice taking on a somber tone. You were able to cross over to find me, but what you brought with you, what is still burdening you? She paused and lowered her head. I had not seen her look so sad since her parents died. Seeing her in pain, in what I believed was heaven, saddened me deeply. I pulled her close, resting her head on my chest, holding her tightly. The skies began to darken, and for a moment, I wondered if we were truly in heaven or somewhere else. I had one promise. I made to myself above all others when we first met, I said to Clara. Never cause her pain. I knew that life and love were not perfect, and hard times were a way of life. But if there was something I could do to keep you from crying, from feeling sad, then I would do whatever it took. I failed more than once in that promise. Leaving you that day was the greatest mistake of my life. We should have been together. You shouldn't have had to die alone. In the silence, I could hear her. She was crying. She lifted her head from my chest and looked into my eyes. I looked back at the tears in her eyes and saw the pain in them. It did not come from my words, but from something deeper that I had stirred up inside of her. I, I wasn't alone, David, Clara whispered. At that moment, something within me shattered. All I had thought about since that day was how I left her there to die. I cursed myself for not trying harder to get back to her. Visions of her dying, screaming out my name, plagued my nightmares. And with a sentence, she had changed all of that. I did not have the words. Clara reached up, placing her hands upon my cheeks. I felt a rush of energy course through my body. Clara's eyes began to glow, a bright, brilliant white. My vision began to white out as if I was trapped in a snowstorm. I could feel my body fading away. It was as if I was turning into energy itself. When the blinding light faded, I found myself in an open space, void, but not dark as before. This was a pure, soft white. Something was familiar about it, as if I had experienced something like this before. It was different from when I first arrived and was taken to the restaurant where I proposed to Clara. When that happened, I did not feel as if I was in control. What I felt hovering there, as a living consciousness, was like a painter staring at a blank canvas about to paint an image from his mind. There was something deep within my mind. It was more than a thought or a memory or a feeling. I could not tell what it was at first, but it was something familiar. As the thoughts became clearer, I felt that what it was in my mind was a presence. It was Clara, her thoughts as well as her feelings. I could access them. She was trying to communicate with me. David, this place where we are now, it is created by our thoughts, our feelings. What we desire or what we feel we deserve will become reality here. I searched for you because I knew how you would feel after my death. Though I never blamed you, I knew you would blame yourself and take that guilt to the grave and beyond. Our life energy holds everything we ever were during our lives. When we shed our shells, 
It is this life energy that becomes our vessel to travel to the afterlife. Sometimes our life energy becomes destabilized due to events in our lives or our death. Often this destabilization can be corrected during the retrieval process when you travel between the world of the living and your life after. Sometimes a loved one can help stabilize this energy. When you first arrived, I created the memory of when you proposed to me. I hoped it would prepare you. I wanted you to enter this world I created by yourself and see what it was before I showed myself. I had hoped it would allow you to forgive yourself and accept your place here with me. Your collapse obviously showed that I was wrong. This place will react to the resonance of your life energy. If it is not stabilized, you can create a prison of your own haunted memories. This is how a personal hell is created. You sentence yourself to it, and once inside, it can be nearly impossible to remove you. While you still carry the pain of that day, the day the meteor fell, I believed you were stabler enough not to fall into a personal prison. But this isn't just about you. Like you, I also carry a burden from that day. I've had time to work through much of it, but until you know the truth, I will never be completely free. In order for us to move forward, you must know what happened that day, and then you will have to decide what will come next. This is why I have entered your mind. I have to show you what happened that day so you would truly understand. Please, forgive me for doing this. I never wanted to hurt you, but as I learned, sometimes the only way to properly heal a wound is to reopen it first. Her voice was not just in my mind. She was a part of me. Our souls were intertwined and I could feel her every thought and emotion. There was a pain deep inside. It felt like the pain I carried, the pain I used to continue fighting. I felt sorry for her and yet could not stop thinking about what she meant about not dying alone. From the void, a single point of light shined brightly and then began to dance all around me. A trail of energy flowed behind the point of light creating a wireframe. As I watched this unfold, I realized what was happening. Claire was creating a reality based on her memories. As the outline was created, slowly the picture came to life in full color and motion. It was of our house near the research center. Claire was sitting on the couch, her eyes focused on the television. I noticed a man on the television giving a press conference. It was Dr. Theed, head of Naxum Research. I immediately remembered that day. It was only a few hours after I had served Clara breakfast in bed. After I left you, David, I began cleaning the house preparing for you to return. I was listening to the radio when they interrupted the broadcast with an alert. When they mentioned the Naxum Institute, I ran to the television and started watching the press conference. I did not know about the press conference until after it had concluded. Many in the scientific community wanted to keep the pending impact of the media from the public. It was President Pierce who ordered the press conference to be made. They kept me in the dark until it was too late and did the same with most of the public. They knew there would be a panic, but they also knew there was nothing they could do. I could move around the room, passing through any objects as if a ghost. Clara's feelings were resonating through me. She was frightened. It was as if she was projecting how the Clara in her memory felt, watching the news conference, knowing what was to come.
When the man on television spoke about the meteor, I wondered why you didn't tell me. I knew there were things you could not tell anyone, even someone you love, but David, you have to understand, I thought you kept it for me because you didn't want me to worry. I hated that sometimes you wouldn't tell me things because you felt you had a solution and soon the issue would be resolved, so there was no reason to tell me. I was angry and scared and wanted to call you when the phone rang. It startled me, but I was excited. I knew it was you and that you would tell me everything was okay. When I picked up the phone, I didn't recognize the voice. The man asked for me by name and wanted to confirm who I was. I thought they were going to tell me you had died, David. He told me that he had orders to bring me to the facility. I asked about you and he told me you were dealing with security. I was so confused, but he told me that there would be only a few moments and that I should gather my things, only the basic essentials. What she was telling me, I knew nothing about. Our security teams were put on high alert. We were told about the updated projected course, but we were assured our defenses would be able to divert or destroy the meteor. Regardless of this, I wanted to tell Clara, let her know what was happening. Once the lockdown order was given, all chances of a communication with the outside world without priority clearance were prohibitive. Still knowing this, I tried everything I knew to get a line out, but was denied. They kept me in the dark, and I was beginning to understand why. The reality I was bearing witness to changed before my eyes. As one scene faded, another one came into view. Naxum Research Facility was built in the Cyrus Mountain. It took over 20 years to build, but when finished, it was one of the most secure facilities in the world. A perimeter fence surrounded the mountain. There was one security gate entrance which led to a set of blast doors at the base of the mountain. No one was allowed within a mild radius of the mountain. What I was witnessing I had never seen before. Thousands of people piled up in front of the main gate. I could hear the scream and cries from people begging to be let in. The military police stood behind the gate and in their towers, rifles aimed towards the crowd. In the distance, a military transport vehicle sped towards its gates. I knew that day, despite the promises that the military could destroy the meteor, the fact that I had been taken away from my home told me that wasn't the case. The man who picked me up only identified himself as Richter and confirmed my identity before rushing me into the car. I asked if I could call you, David, but they told me the base was on lockdown. As we approached the base, I saw the massive crowd of people screaming to be let in. I felt horrible knowing I could be spared and all those people would die. In a flash of light, I could see inside the vehicle. Clara sat clutching a small bag, staring out the window at the mass of people. There was a dark-haired man in a military uniform I did not recognize. I had never seen him before. He was shouting at the driver. I could see that it scared Clara even more. We have to move, Richter yelled. We're out of time. Driver, if you have to, run them down. No, Clara cried out. They are frightened, just like me. Isn't there anything you can do? Isn't there room for these people? He told me the facility was created for a spe specific number of people. In case of an attack or disaster, the facility would seal itself, and there would be a specific amount of food and water. 
It did not make sense to me, David. How could they know how long they would need to be locked in? What did they know about the media that they weren't willing to tell me or anyone else? I could not answer questions even if I knew how to. No one I knew had any information beyond what the scientists and military brass were telling us. At the time, I had no idea the meteor were close to hitting the earth. They locked out all access to the terminals and video feeds. I knew something was wrong, but there was nothing I could do. This is impossible, sir, the driver said as the crowd began to swarm around the vehicle. We can't make it through these people. They're going to tear us apart. <sighs> we're out of time, Richter said. We need to move to site two. I screamed at Richter, demanding to know what was happening. What did he mean we were out of time? And what was site two? The people outside were attacking the car. They were screaming at us to get in. The driver slammed on the gas, taking the car into reverse. My god, David. I could hear the people being crushed on the car. I could feel it. I'm sorry, Mrs. Livingston, Richter said. What has been reported about the meteor was incorrect. The data shown to the public was modified. The meteor is much closer than what was said. Some who have access to telescopes had already realized this. But as we control all long-range monitoring devices, we are able to keep much of the public unaware. Unaware of what? Clara asked. I knew the answer before Richter spoke. The military never had a plan to evacuate its citizens. The research facilities built around the world were to protect specific data and specific personnel. While there were several, it would not hold even one half of one percent of the world's population. It made sense why no one was told of what was happening. The military was making a half-assed attempt to secure the families of personnel working at the facility, but they knew if they told the men and women stationed there the true dire circumstances, there would be a breakdown of command. They needed us functioning and doing our jobs, so they lied to us. He told me everything. The meteor was tracked long ago and was never on a collision course with Earth. When they discovered its trajectory had changed, they scrambled to come up with a countermeasure. When it was clear there was nothing they could do, they began preparations to save and salvage what and who they could. They called you in, David, knowing what was to come. It was then that I realized that you didn't call me because you couldn't. Either you did not know exactly what was happening, or you did and were prevented from calling. As we sped away from the facility, Richter told me that there was a chance we could make it to the temporary site created while Naxum was being built. He told me the meteor would not reach Earth's orbit for another hour. I thought about you and how it could be years before we would see each other again when there was a bright flash of light. It was so blinding, covering everything. The driver lost control. I could feel the car spinning off the road. I was about to die, and all I wished was that I could see your face one last time. Next week, Chapter 5.